This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Westminster's Confession, The Abandonment of Van Til's Legacy by Gary North, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright Gary North, 1991. Chapter 6 the question of God's predictable historical sanctions. Quote, and it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees that say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. Zephaniah 1.12. Quote. Quote, and meanwhile, it, the common grace order, must run its course within the uncertainties of the mutually conditioning principles of common grace and common curse, prosperity and adversity being experienced in a manner largely unpredictable because of the inscrutable sovereignty of the divine will that dispenses them in mysterious ways. End quote. Meredith G. Klein, 1978. Does God bring His positive and negative sanctions in New Covenant history? Are these sanctions predictable in terms of His Bible-revealed law? Are these sanctions culture-wide? The Christian's answers to these three questions will determine his social theory. The theonomists answer all three positively. The pluralists and amillennialists answer the first with a whispered, quote, yes, end quote. The second with a hesitant, quote, possibly, end quote, in church and Christian family. And the third with a resounding, Quote, no, end quote. The humanists answer all three with a categorical, quote, no, end quote. The battle lines between Christian social theory and humanist social theory are inescapably drawn in terms of these answers. Christians recognize that in the days of Zephaniah, God brought predictable sanctions in history. The debate begins with the bodily death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Did this interlocked series of judicial and historical events, covenantal to the core, destroy the predictability of God's sanctions in history? If not, did this predictability end with the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70? For the most part, Christian theologians and leaders have long assumed that at least some of the predictability of the Old Covenant's sanctions has been muted in the New Covenant. The question is, how muted has this predictability become? Klein and the common grace amillennialists are clear, totally muted. According to Klein, God's sanctions in history today are, as far as we can observe, random. Van Til was even worse. He thought that God's new covenant sanctions are predictable. They are, in fact, inverse to the old covenant's system of sanctions. Blessings increase for covenant breakers, and cursings increase for covenant keepers until the day of doom. Quote, but when all the reprobate are epistemologically self-conscious, the crack of doom has come. The fully self-conscious reprobate will do all he can in every dimension to destroy the people of God. So while we seek with all our power to hasten the process of differentiation in every dimension, we are yet thankful, on the other hand, for, quote, the day of grace, end quote the day of undeveloped differentiation. 
Such tolerance as we receive on the part of the world is due to this fact that we live in the earlier rather than in the later stage of history, and such influence on the public situation as we can affect, whether in society or in state, presupposes this undifferentiated stage of development. End quote. This was Van Til's Amillennialism at Work. Mystery and Irresponsibility There is no better way for a Christian to proclaim his own personal and cultural irresponsibility in history than to proclaim the mystery of God's specific revelation. Mystery is defined as man's permanent ignorance. Mystery cannot be overcome. It does exist, of course. Quote, the secret things belong unto the Lord God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. End quote. Deuteronomy 29.29 Notice that mystery and biblical law are contrasted. The impenetrable mysteries of God are not to discourage us, because we have His revealed law. But in denying the legitimacy of biblical law in New Testament times, modern antinomians are implicitly, and sometimes explicitly, substituting mystery for biblical law. This can lead to mysticism, personal withdrawal into the interior recesses of one's incommunicable consciousness, escape religion. It can also lead to antinomian Pentecostalism, direct authoritative messages from God to a few uniquely gifted leaders, spokesmen in history, point two of the biblical covenant, messages that replace God's law since God's law is no longer binding, that this power religion leads again and again to ecclesiastical tyranny should surprise no one. In either case, there is an increase of personal irresponsibility. To classify as one of, quote, the secret things of God, end quote, the idea of God's predictable sanctions in history requires a leap of faith. The question is, is such a leap of faith biblical? Or is the Old Testament's message of God's predictable sanctions in history itself part of our covenantal legacy from God, meaning, quote, those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law, end quote. Quote, Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great, who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law, which I set before you this day? Only take heed to thyself, and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons, and thy sons' sons, especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. And ye came near and stood under the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire unto the midst of heaven, with darkness, clouds, 
and thick darkness. Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 11. End quote. No mystery here. The children of Israel were ready for this message of law and the appropriate covenantal sanctions. These sanctions were basic to Israel's understanding of their relation to God. Quote, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God, in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, lest, when thou hast eaten and art full, and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee, to do thee good at, at thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. For it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that ye shall surely perish, as the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall ye perish, because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 8, 11-20 The vast majority of Bible-affirming theologians today assume that there has been a radical new covenant break from old covenant citizenship. They assume, though seldom, if ever, attempt to prove exegetically, that the Old Covenant's close links between the social rewards of covenant-keeping and the social cursings of covenant-breaking are no longer operative in the New Covenant order. More than this, there are supposedly no predictable covenantal sanctions in New Covenant history, meaning no sanctions applied by God in terms of biblical law. Klein and his disciples argue that God does not bring predictable covenantal sanctions against a social order at all, i.e., that the historical sanctions in the New Covenant era are random from covenant-keeping man's point of view. Quote, God's sanctions are mysterious, end quote. What readers may not immediately recognize is that such an argument is a cover for a very different ethical conclusion, namely, that historical sanctions should therefore be imposed in terms of some rival system of historical sanctions. There must always be sanctions in society, imposed by the state, the family, the market, and numerous other associations. The five covenantal questions are, 1. Who establishes these sanctions? 2. What agent or agency enforces them? 3. What is the moral foundation of these sanctions? 4. What sanctions apply to which acts? 5. Does the society prosper and expand its influence when these sanctions are enforced? To say that the Bible does not provide this covenant order in the New Testament era is to say that some other covenant is legitimate for society. But the opponents of biblical covenant social order never dare to admit this. They hide their implicit call for the establishment of some other covenantal standard in the language of ethical neutrality or 
judicial randomness. But there is no ethical neutrality. So, are God's sanctions in history really random, covenantally speaking? The Old Covenant surely teaches the opposite. Where in the New Covenant is the Old Covenant teaching abrogated? John Calvin did not think so. Quote, Let us note, then, that if the patriarchs were more blessed by God than we are concerning this present life, we ought not to wonder at it at all. For the reason for it is apparent. But no matter how things go, yet is this saying of St. Paul always verified, that the fear of God holds promise not only for the life to come, but also for this present life. 1 Timothy 4.8 Let us therefore walk in obedience to God, and then we can be assured that He will show Himself a Father to us. Yea, even in the maintenance of our bodies, at least as far as concerns keeping and preserving us in peace, delivering us from all evils, and providing for us and our necessities. God, I say, will make us to feel His blessing in all these things, so that we walk in His fear. Quote. The Church's Exile, Yet God's Inscrutability John R. Meether, whose essay on Theonomy appears in Theonomy, A Reformed Critique, rejects this view of God's predictable sanctions in history. It is important to consider the underlying worldview that Meether offers, for it is an extension of Meredith Klein's. Meether does not inform the reader of these presuppositions in his Theonomy essay, but a few months prior to the publication of the book, another essay by Meether appeared. In it, he sketches the implications of Klein's amillennialism, meaning less pessimistic than Van Til's. He speaks of the New Testament era as a period of exile for the Church, this is the language of pessimillennialism. Simultaneously, he speaks of God's random sanctions. Quote, Our exile has no guarantees, few securities. It affords no occasion for triumphalism. We have no promise from God regarding our cultural achievements. Unlike the promises to the holy nation of Israel in the Old Testament, the common grace state possesses no special guarantees of a material blessing as a reward for its obedience to the law of God. Rather, prosperity and adversity are experienced, unpredictably, through the inscrutable sovereignty of God's will. End quote. Here is the familiar theme of Klein's common grace amillennialism, the inscrutability of God in history. Meether asserts the indeterminate nature of the New Covenant era's sanctions. Quote, things may improve, things may get worse, common grace ebbs and flows throughout history. End quote. This is an important admission on the part of the disciple of Kleins. The exile con condition of the church in history is based on God's random sanctions. What I argue here and in my book on common grace is that all amillennialists are in fact, quote, exile, end quote, theologians. They believe that God brings negative sanctions against his covenant people in history, no matter what they do. Van Til said that these negative sanctions will grow progressively worse. Klein, the, quote, optimist, end quote, insists only that there can be no victory of Christianity in history. Christians are in a cultural whole, and there is no reason to believe that God will ever pull us out of it in history. Why say, then, that there are no guarantees in history? If you argue that history develops or fails to develop in a particular way, you are asserting a guaranteed scenario. If you are a Calvinist, 
and therefore believe in God's providential control of history, you have to believe in guarantees. Meether systematically misleads his readers when he says that there are no guarantees in history. Quote, Our exile has no guarantees. End quote. Of course there are guarantees. If the church is in a condition of permanent exile, we have a guarantee. No deliverance in history. The language of no guarantees is the language of neutrality. Neutrality is a myth, here as everywhere. There could be no neutrality in millennial speculation. Meether is a pesimillennialist, although he nowhere mentions this crucial fact in his essay. Van Til also neglected to mention this same eschatological commitment in his, quote, unleavened, end quote, essays. For all but the postmillennialists, that is, for all forms of pessimillennialism, there are indeed God-given guarantees. Guarantees of historical cultural failure for Christians, in general, and the Church specifically. There is nothing random about exile. Meether's theology of cultural defeat is self-conscious, for he thoroughly understands exactly what his pessimillennialism implies. Quote, First, we cannot get caught up in the things of this world. This world is penultimate. It will pass away, and so we must eagerly await the new world to come. End quote. He goes on, quote, The church in this world, in other words, is a people in exile. We are far short of the kingdom of God. Dot, dot, dot. The church is called to suffer in this world. End quote. From this we can legitimately infer what is never stated publicly by these defenders of Christianity's cultural impotence in history. Covenant breakers are not in comparable exile and are not called to suffer nearly so much as the church is. Why did God change the rules after the ascension? Meether's Total Discontinuity Final Judgment What is most significant about Meether's essay in terms of social theory is that he clearly asserts a radical discontinuity between what he calls the coming kingdom and this world of church history. Quote, the kingdom of God will come from above, not made with human hands, and no cultural activity, redeemed or unredeemed, will carry over into the new order. End quote. This is, is a consistent and inescapable assertion of the common grace amillennialism's worldview. The self-conscious denial of the eternal cultural relevance of anything men do in history. All of mankind's cultural efforts are completely doomed, whether produced by covenant keepers or covenant breakers. If this were the case, the works of covenant keepers and the works of covenant breakers would be equal in historical impact. There would be no cultural, quote, earnest, end quote, no cultural down payment by God in history. God would pull victory out of the jaws of covenant breakers at the last day. Christians could then learn nothing culturally from their experiences in history that will carry over into the final state although Meether and his many Common Grace colleagues never put things so bluntly. Except for the personal salvation of individuals, history for them resembles what Macbeth said it is, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. This view of church history is why modern Calvinism is not covenantal. It is individualistic. New covenant history for the amillennialist has meaning only as a means of separating the saved from the lost. This is why it is pietistic. The Non-Lessons of History
Let us think about Meether's assertions for a few moments. If we can learn nothing of eternal value culturally from history, since nothing of cultural value carries over into the resurrected state, then how can we have any confidence that we can learn anything useful regarding the success or failure of personal ethics in history? If Christians' social efforts in history are as devoid of eternal significance as those of non-Christians, a variant of the familiar neutrality hypothesis, then why not also Christians' personal ethical efforts? If there is no covenantal relationship between our cultural efforts in history and our rewards in history, then on what basis can we expect to discover a covenantal relationship between our personal ethical efforts and rewards in history? Furthermore, what about our familialistic and our ecclesiastical corporate efforts? Why single out politics as an area of Christianity's necessary, historic irrelevance and impotence? Why not also include the church and the family? Meether does not mention this obvious implication of his theology of God's random historical sanctions. Neither do his common grace amillennial peers. This would be too much for most Christians to swallow. Quote, pessimism, yes, but not that much pessimism. End quote. To say that all our corporate institutional efforts are doomed would be to commit theological suicide in full public view, and no one wants to do this. So they verbally concentrate on politics and culture, even though their pessimistic worldview cannot, in principle, be separated from all other covenantal and social institutions. The critics of Christian Reconstruction imply, and sometimes explicitly state, that the primary concern of Christian Reconstructionists is political, even though we consistently deny this, my slogan is, quote, politics forth, end quote. Meether, for example, calls his opponents, quote, political utopians, end quote. Why do these critics of theonomy persist in this misrepresentation? I contend that it is because their theological strategy is to call people's attention away from their comprehensive denial of Christianity's social relevance. They can readily sell their anti-theocratic views to people raised on the humanistic theology of pluralism, but they do not want to pursue the logic of their position to its inescapable conclusion, the historical irrelevance of Christianity for both the church and the family. Thus, the theonomist's affirm affirmation of the relevance of the Bible for the civil covenant becomes the focus of their attempted refutations, ignoring the fact that this very affirmation is inextricably entwined with our affirmation of the relevance of the Bible for church, family, and everything else. For rhetorical purposes, offensive, these anti-covenantal theologians and pastors attack our covenantal political stand. For equally rhetorical purposes, defensive, they remain prudently silent about the connection between our view of the covenant and all the other areas of society. They want to deny the covenantal relevance of Christianity for politics while implicitly retaining faith in the covenantal relevance of Christianity for other institutions. They cannot do this logically or theologically, but they attempt it anyway. It makes for good editorial copy. It also makes for incoherent book-length studies. Hence, they refuse to write book-length studies. They confine themselves to essays. Meether's Verbal Ledger Domain 
Mether's language of God's historical inscrutability of this world's historical open-endedness is a carefully contrived illusion, an example of verbal ledger domain. On the one hand, he says that the church is in exile in history. This is its permanent historical condition. This condition is guaranteed by a Calvinistic, predestinating, totally sovereign God. On the other hand, he asserts that God's ethical randomness is manifested in history. Quote, things may improve, things may get worse. Common grace ebbs and flows throughout history. End quote. He defines, quote, exile, end quote, as an indeterminate condition in which things may get better or may get worse, yet on average stay pretty much the same throughout New Covenant history. Would you like to construct an ethical system or social philosophy in terms of this view of history? How about a theory of business or technology? No, neither would anyone else. This assertion of indeterminacy, as I have already argued, is a contrived illusion. If God applied his sanctions randomly, then the institutional covenantal outcome would hardly be random. It would be perverse. Covenant breakers would retain control over culture throughout church history, despite the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ to the right hand of God the Father. But this is precisely what Calvinist amillennialists say must happen. It is predestined by God this way. Klein, Mether, and the random sanctions amillennialists are all bearers of bad news. A flatline eschatology in a world presently dominated by covenant breakers is bad news. It is also difficult to defend exegetically. No eschatological position that I am aware of has ever been defended exegetically which asserts the existence of what is, in effect, a horizontal flatline for the social and cultural efforts of Christianity in history. Without exception, systematic theologians have argued that the Church's influence will either decline over time until Jesus comes again, or else increase. There is no millennial neutrality. Common grace does not, quote, ebb and flow, end quote, apart from history's directionality, either inclining or declining. Like an electronic sine wave on a screen, common grace does indeed oscillate around a linear development, but this linear relationship is not flat. It is inclined over time, either up, postmillennialism, or down, traditional amillennialism, and quote, church age, end quote, dispensational premillennialism. I assume that Mether, as a seminary professor, must know this, yet he refuses to mention it in his essay. In this sense, he follows the tradition of Meredith Klein, who has also steadfastly refused for well over a decade to pursue in print the implications of his theory of God's random sanctions in history. A Rigged System of Justice Here is what Klein and his disciples really believe. In order to keep the church suppressed in history, God does not apply his sanctions according to the covenantal standards in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Why not? Because the randomness of God's historical sanctions would guarantee the non-neutrality of the outcome. Since God's non-neutrality, covenantal faithfulness, ensures the victory of His covenant people in history. But wait. Is it merely neutral or random for God to prevent the visible outcomes 
that he specified in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28? Can God go from visible covenantal faithfulness to visible randomness without becoming visible covenantally unfaithful in history? Not if neutrality is a myth. But as Klein and his disciples know, Van Til proved biblically that neutrality is a myth. So what they are really saying is that God holds his finger on the scales of justice so that covenant breakers can maintain both cultural and judicial control throughout history. In short, according to the historical judicial criteria of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God externally rewards covenant breakers in history far more than they deserve. And he curses his covenant people far more than they deserve. Thus, Meether's language of God's judicial neutrality is a smokescreen. Random historical sanctions means a rigged system of, of justice, rigged against covenant keepers. The historical outcome of God's system of rewards and punishments in history is not inscrutable for the peasant millennialist. The supposed inscrutability of God's historical sanctions guarantees a highly predictable, that is, inevitable outcome the defeat of Christianity in history. This is what pessimillennialism teaches. The system of judicial sanctions is not merely random. It is ethically perverse. God is said to reward covenant breakers with external success even if they break His covenant laws. And He drives the covenant keepers into, quote, exile, end quote, even if they remain faithful to the terms of His covenant. It was not this way in the Old Testament. These theologians are forced to admit, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, but it is today. These are the inescapable ethical implications of common grace amillennialism. Yet, its defenders refuse to admit this. Such a frank admission apparently hurts too much. Also, it would make it difficult to gain new recruits, and they do not have many followers, as it is. Calling Christians to a life of guaranteed cultural frustration is not a good way to gain disciples, especially activists. Why would anyone believe in such a perverse system of justice? Because a person must believe this if he defends a pessimillennial eschatology. Bad people win, despite the gospel and God's historical sanctions. The ethical non-neutrality of the outcome of the work of the gospel in history is the fundamental presupposition of all pessimillennialism. Bad fruit does not come from good trees. Similarly, bad results do not come from neutral sanctions. Conclusion These amillennial sanctions are neither neutral nor random. God's historical sanctions must be rigged against Christianity in order for covenant breakers to maintain cultural control. For evil to triumph in history, God must refuse to reward His covenant-keeping people and also refuse to retard the efforts of covenant breakers. Pesimillennialists have therefore implicitly rewritten the second commandment. Quote, For the Lord thy God is not a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto thousands of generations of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto the third and fourth generation of them that love me and keep my commandments. End quote. Meether is not alone in this view of God's providence and the church's future. This outlook, quote, God's inscrutability unto cultural irrelevance, end quote, is in fact an eschatology of inevitable historical defeat. 
dispensational theology teaches the same thing about the cultural efforts of Christians during the so-called, quote, church age, end quote. An exception, the premillennialist who has adopted Van Til's even more pessimistic vision. But Meether's view is worse. For being both Calvinistic and amillennial, it offers no hope for Christians in history, not even the rapture. Applying Rush Dooney's dictum, John R. Meether is basically a premillennialist without earthly hope. So are all of his amillennial colleagues at Westminster. The difference is, they hesitate to admit this in print. They prefer to remain silent, as if these practical eschatological issues can be avoided by the Church. In response, I argue that it is never a question of God's predictable historical sanctions versus no sanctions. The question rather is this. Against whom will God's negative sanctions be predictably imposed? Covenant keepers or covenant breakers? There could be no neutrality. The amillennialist and the premillennialist both insist that prior to the next prophesied eschatological discontinuity, which they insist is Christ's second coming, or the rapture, God's negative sanctions will be imposed either equally against covenant keepers and covenant breakers, Klein's random news, or progressively against covenant keepers, with covenant breakers acting as God's appointed agents, Van Til's bad news. The familiar denial of God's predictable negative sanctions in history is in fact an affirmation of the inevitability of his negative sanctions against the Church, from Pentecost to the bodily return of Christ in power and glory. The postmillennialist, in sharp contrast, denies that covenant keepers will be the primary target of God's negative sanctions throughout history. He argues that the message of the Bible is covenantal. Faithfulness brings God's blessings, while rebellion brings God's curses, Deuteronomy 28. This is the message of the Old Testament prophets. They brought covenant lawsuits against Israel and Judah, judicially calling all covenant breakers back to covenantal faithfulness and threatening them with direct, culture-wide, negative sanctions if they refused. Furthermore, in a shocking disregard of the non-theonomists' principle that only ancient Israel was under the judicial requirements of God's covenant, Jonah was sent to Nineveh to announce the same message. In forty days, God would bring his sanctions against them. Jonah, initially acting in a non-theonomic fashion, remained faithful to his principle that God was not really interested in bringing Nineveh under the terms of his covenant. He steadfastly refused to bring this covenant lawsuit against Nineveh, and he suffered an unpleasant three-day experience as a result of this refusal. He was given time to rethink his position, which he did, becoming theonomic. He then was given another opportunity to prosecute God's lawsuit, which turned out to be successful, unique in the Old Covenant era. Conclusion What if I were to come to you and try to recruit you to a difficult missionary field, namely the city of Sodom? No, I don't mean San Francisco. I mean the original city. I would then tell you that in fact the whole world is Sodom, or will progressively become so in the future. You are being asked to spend your life there, just as Lot spent his days there, vexed. I assure you that no angels will come to lead you out. There will be no widespread conversion of the city, either. Not in your lifetime, or in anyone else's lifetime. 
There will be no fiery judgment until the last day, and I refuse to tell you when that will be. The best news I can tell you about your assignment, indeed, the only good news, is that your wife will not be under any risk whatsoever of being turned to salt. I then assure you that this program is called a victory assignment, part of a missionary program known as Realized Eschatology. What would you think of my recruiting strategy? You would probably regard me as either a madman or a Calvinistic seminary professor. This is why the present-day theology of our sanctions-denying Calvinistic seminaries tends to undercut evangelism. If graduates believe in God's predestination, they had better not be taught that God will inevitably bring either negative sanctions against covenant keepers or at best random sanctions compared to how he will deal in history with covenant breakers. The Dutch version of common grace is a negative legacy. Yet it is this aspect of Van Til's theology rather than his attack on natural law theory that is emphasized by his disciples at Westminster Seminary, not to mention Mr. Meether, who is now the librarian of Reform Seminary in Orlando, Florida. The theonomists have abandoned Van Til's bad news millennialism, but have adopted his view on natural law theory. The Westminster faculty retains his millennial views, but has abandoned his views on natural law. The theonomists have adopted biblical law theory, which Van Til never proclaimed. The Westminster faculty has rejected biblical law, but has offered no biblical judicial alternative. Thus, no one defends the full legacy of Van Til any more than anyone defends the old Princeton. Non-theonomic postmillennialism and Scottish common-sense rationalism, history moves forward. The problem is sometimes one's legacies wind up at war with each other. It was said by Warfield that the Reformation took place when Augustine's doctrine of grace came into conflict with Augustine's doctrine of the church. Such is also the fate of the divided legacies of both Calvin and Van Til. Van Til followed the Dutch tradition of millennialism, coupled with formal social concern, anti-individualism. Yet this social concern was never translated into a uniquely biblical social theory. The preaching of the Dutch tradition remains that of the ghetto cloister, why? Because amillennialism, like premillennialism, rejects the covenantal idea of God's predictable sanctions in history. If God does not bring his negative sanctions against covenant breakers in history, then there's no way to bring a covenant lawsuit against a civilization. You can bring one against individuals, the threat of eternal damnation, but not against collectives. This inevitable, pesimillennial rejection of the concept of the covenant lawsuit against corporate Covenant breaking has converted all modern preaching into individualism. There can be neither covenant theology nor covenant preaching if there is no doctrine of God's covenant sanctions in history. This is why Westminster's confession is no longer covenantal. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, 
where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.